Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. This is Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks University in England. Today I am with two of the authors of a new book published by Manchester University Press in 2022. This is Foundational Economy. And I am with Professor Julie Froud and Professor Carol Williams from Manchester University. Uh, please, welcome if you can introduce yourself and also uh, the, some of the other components of the collective, because this book is the result of a collective effort. And by the way, it's a very interesting and impressive multidisciplinary effort. I see in the background of the members of your collective, very interesting uh, pluralities. Hi, I'm Julie Froud from the University of Manchester, with me. Carol Williams, also from the University of Manchester and Chair of the Foundational Economy Network Wales, which is a practitioner organisation. So we're both based in the business school, and I think it, it's, it's, it's interesting to note that the, the other authors of this Foundational Economy book come from quite a wide range of other academic disciplines, so that covers economic sociology, economic geography, politics, industrial relations. And I think the reason that was helpful is that the the topic of the book is is so broad, it it really benefits from having all of those different perspectives, historical, financial, social, because that's something, you know, reflects the nature of the foundational economy, how it's been changed, and also the possibilities for improving it in the future. And the, the book really came out of some extended conversations between a, a, a group of us, mostly academics, but also some practitioners. And along the way, we we called ourselves the Foundational Economy Collective because we thought that reflected what we were we were trying to do. And we were quite keen to, to have, a, have an authored book rather than an edited collection of separate chapters. We wanted to put together a, a coherent statement. Um, so members of the collective have written other books on the foundational economy, especially our colleagues in Italy. But this was a kind of a relatively short, but hopefully coherent um, statement about the foundational economy, um, published originally in English. And it's since been translated into Italian, German, 
Portuguese and, and Turkish. Good. Let's start from the title then. What do we mean with foundational economy? How many people work in the sectors that belong to this definition? What's the GDP in England and in other countries of that component of our, of our economies? Right. The foundational economy is the sector or the zone of the economy which actually provides us with our daily essentials. In a sense, we're moving away from national income accounting and think which talks about the economy by adding everything up in terms of market value. Instead, we're dividing the economy into zones and sectors. And this zone, the foundational zone, is the zone that provides daily essentials. And they divide broadly into two categories, the material uh, essentials, pipe and cable utilities, food distribution, housing, etc., and then the providential services, uh, health and care and education. So in terms of traditional terminology, it's very much, if you like, the welfare state or the welfare services as were originally conceived, because that's what's in the providential, with this extra material uh, wrapper about the utilities and food distribution. And if we look at it, that's important because 40% or more of the workforce, of the total workforce in the economy, similar amount of the um, of GVA or GDP is tied up with the provision of these daily essentials. And of course, we're focusing on this as a way of focusing on what matters to people. Any interruption in the supply of essentials is immediately a crisis and also as a way of trying to shift attention away from the tradable competitive economy, the sexy bits, wheels, wings, biotech, and all the rest of that, which has tended to monopolize policymakers' attention. Has the recent pandemic made an impact on how researchers, but also the general public, sees those sectors, in, in both in the public sphere, but also in the private sector, looking at, for example, the vulnerability of long supply chains? Yeah, I think it was obvious straight away when COVID-19 hit that, you know, the politicians and, and uh, policymakers would, would have to kind of think think about, you know, who were, who were the essential workers and who were the people who could, who could be allowed to, to work from home. So it was clear that, you know, a lot of workers were going to be essential and there was a very, you know, almost a direct overlap between the way we thought about the foundational economy that Carol's just described and these official classifications of key workers or essential workers in both, you know, the material and the providential um, areas of the foundational economy. So it wasn't just the obvious um, sectors like health and communications, but I think it was really striking that um, areas like food distribution and retailing were, were, were recognised as being so important. So in that sense, the pandemic sort of provided confirmation that the foundational economy certainly was important and needed to be kind of pushed much further up the kind of agenda in terms of, you know, visibility. When we think about the economy, we need to be thinking about food distribution, healthcare, those unglamorous things, and how we provide those services better and sustain them 
Um, so I think that, that it was a nice validation in some ways, but I, and, and, and important, I think, in the moment. But I think there's a real challenge in how to sustain the interest in those sectors after the pandemic, because, you know, politicians have short attention spans. And I think it's a challenge to go beyond saying these sectors matter and the workers in these sectors matter and think about how do we reimagine these sectors in different ways and think about the, 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 the policy in different ways. And if we're reimagining these sectors, I don't think it's simply about the vulnerability of long supply chains. It's also about the nature and climate emergency and environmental crisis. Because if we look at the issues, then in a way, the foundational solutions of one generation are the problems of the next. Half or more uh, of the carbon footprint in the UK and other high income countries is tied up with our foundational services. You know, the problem is the transport emissions, the problem is the, um, the foodstuffs, the problem is energy inefficient housing. So there's, in a sense, beyond this issue about COVID underlying the, our basic dependence day by day on essential services, there's this larger challenge of cleaning up the foundational economy and developing new systems. We've talked, for example, about wood economy replacing steel and cement in construction. And all of that is a major challenge. So adapting, reusing and renewing the foundational economy is really the agenda going forward. I would like to ask you why this book was needed, but also surprisingly, why there wasn't something else in the past being addressed in addressing this perspective? I think the, the, the key point about the book is the way it brings together these different parts of the economy. So, of course, there'd be many books written on the welfare state or on aspects like housing or transport, which are clearly very important you know, for the economy and society. But I think it was the way of putting together both, you know, both the welfare sectors and the material sectors around you know, energy, communications, transportation, food, retail banking, and so on. I think to sort of see those together and to see that there are there are kind of common themes in how we think about them, what's gone wrong in the provision of those services and how we reimagine them. So I think that 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 it, it sounds like a very basic observation, but I think that was a very important step to kind of understand that infrastructures are are are, are diverse and important in different ways. So I think that that was important in the book when it was first published in 2018 and I, I think it feels like a very long time ago now and the second edition of the book is 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 is, is being published in um in the next few weeks by manchester university press and i think a lot has changed in 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 the the, the intervening four years i think one is the pandemic that we were just discussing and secondly the, you know the growing awareness about nature and climate emergency that Carol was mentioning. I think this is, for, for, for us, I think this is definitely reshaping the way we think about the foundational economy so that we, it's not simply a case of saying, well, we've neglected public transport, we've neglected healthcare, we need to go back to where we were. We need to look forward and think about how, how do we kind of renew these infrastructures in ways that are kind of, 
you know, deliver social justice and um, environmental sustainability. But if we're thinking of, of moving from thinking foundational about a zonal economy and sectors and why the foundational uh, sectors matter to doing foundational, yes, we've got to adapt to environmental crisis, but we've also, I think, got to come to terms with the way in which um, the foundational sectors have generally been messed up in the last 40 years by a combination of privatization and financialization. Now, this is an international effort, your collective, but let's focus on the UK. Uh, what went wrong here in the past decades uh, in the care sector? What went wrong with the privatization and the financialization of, of our economy? Of course, each country neglected something and something went, went wrong uh, in each of uh, the European countries. But what went wrong here and why? Well, I think the this point, history becomes relevant. And history is relevant now because we face an environmental crisis. History of the foundation is relevant if we look backwards. I mean, traditionally, a large part of the foundational economy from uh, education, health, etc., was socially provided on a not-for-profit basis by the state. And private providers for example, railway companies, accepted returns of less than 5% return on capital implied. Now, what happened after 1979 in the UK, and I think in America, the two countries which led these trends, was firstly the privatization of a whole load of services which had previously been provided by the state. For example, all the utilities in the UK, water, electricity, gas, etc., were actually privatized. And at the same time, there was financialization so that um, corporate providers were under the cosh to produce return on capital employed, which was 10%, not 5%. So you have characteristic patterns of financial extraction, underinvestment, and loading of firms with debt. And all of this is a major problem because, in a sense, it stands in the way of the renewal of foundational infrastructure and the provision of good services. Though I'd add a qualification in all of this, the problem isn't really private provision, but corporatized and financialized provision. If you look at um, what the Americans would call mom and pop firms in care, they have a completely different business model from private equity chain providers who control 20% of the beds in British care. What would be a foundational economy approach to policy making? So if you were advising the policymaker, uh, what would you suggest in terms of changing the metrics? And can you tell us about the idea of social licensing? Okay, so I think that, that that's that's a really Im, Im, important question. And, you know, the the, 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 the book is, is, is very much concerned with trying to, you know, explain why the foundational economy is important and why it's gone wrong. And in, in some ways, that, that's, of course, the easy bit. It's what academics like to do is kind of analyze the problems. 
So I think it's really important that the foundational economy project is, is concerned with the doing part as well. And how do we kind of think about these really big practical problems we face about the renewal of foundational infrastructures? So I think the, the, the first thing is to think about the, the, you know, the objectives of policy or the focus of policy. And I think it's, it's no longer radical to, to argue that GDP or GVA is a very poor measure of what matters. I think that argument has been made by many people. The question then, of course, is what do you put in its place and you know, how do we capture you know, things like well-being or livability? And there are different ways of doing that in terms of combinations of objective and subjective matters. And, and of course, it's much more complicated if you want to move away from a single measure like GDP to one around livability or well-being. Um, so I think it's not the case of saying, well, there's one unique measure that we're opting for. It's a case of saying, well, there are, we need to recognise there are lots of different things that matter and they might matter differently to different groups of people. So I think it's recognising that, you know, different kinds of measures will be important rather than trying to fixate on one unique measure. But I, I guess beyond the idea of measurement, um, I think the, 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 you know, the, the real challenge is to think about how do we, you know, how do, how do we do things? How do we improve the foundational economy so that whatever it is we're measuring gets better? And this is, I think, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a real challenge for um, academics and policymakers to be, you know, working in a, in a, in a, in a, in a kind of form of co-production here, because working out what to do you know, it's not a case of looking in a in a toolkit and saying we know the answers already. We've really got to think about um, experimentation, new forms of social innovation. We've got to try out different ways of working, and we also need to figure out how to kind of share that knowledge in an effective way because there's lots of lots of innovation happens, but often the the results of that are not shared widely. And what we what we're finding out um, at the moment from Wales, which interestingly is the kind of the first country that says it's adopted a foundational economy approach is that it, you know this means really trying to identify different ways of doing things um trying to identify uh, you know who the key actors are how to put actors into new alliances so that you get people working together from inside and outside government and big public organizations and the private sector so how do we think about who the actors are how do we think about the ways that they need to work together? How do we think about things like business models? How do we provide the capital for the renewal of foundational infrastructures? Because these are often quite capital intensive systems. How do we think about revenue support that's required as well? So I think it's a, it's a combination of things that, you know, the experiments, the learning, um, the alliances, the, the business models, and all of those things are going to be different depending upon whether we're talking about healthcare or housing or food systems. So it's not the case that there's a generic set of answers, but I think there is lots of different ways of learning how to do things, um, which can be transferred to some extent um, you know, between sectors. Social licensing, I think, is a part of that. Um, social licensing is important because as we were just discussing in, in, in the UK, as in um, other countries, large parts of the foundational economy um, you know, is provided by private companies. And some of that is in areas like water or energy um, services that you know, should never have been privatized in the first place. But it's not immediately easy or, or cheap 
to reverse that. You know, it'd be very expensive to, to take back those services into national ownership and politically it's not immediately possible. So how do we think about other things that could happen in those um, areas that which would improve social outcomes? And then in other activities like, like food or retail banking, well, these have always been private sector activities. So social licensing is a way of thinking about a series of kind of interventions in areas where foundational services are, at least at the moment, are, are provided privately. And the simplest way of thinking about a social license is it, social license is a way of you know thinking about something for something. So private companies like supermarkets enjoy huge privileges. If you think about your local supermarket, it's probably a monopoly or at least has a very large local market share. So because of its, its location, it's been granted planning permission, it's able to capture a large part of local food and drink expenditure. So social licensing would say, well, in return for that privilege, what is it we'd expect that supermarket to do in return? And that could be around employment conditions. It could be around working with local suppliers. It could be around making space available in stores or in car parks for other, um, other activities, which together deliver a much broader set of benefits. So it's kind of trying to make sure that there's a kind of not simply a voluntaristic, you know, rather limited corporate social responsibility, which is, you know, initi initiatives by the private sector, but a way of society thinking about what, what, what's the something we want in return to the kind of in return for those corporate privileges. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let me mention, oh, sorry. Let me mention two actors that uh, we thought were doomed to disappear after Margaret Thatcher, after Reagan. Instead, they survive and they, there might even be a revival. I refer to trade unions and to cooperatives, either workers' cooperatives or users' cooperatives. Um, what's the role of those two actors in your book, in your point of view? Well, historically, as you say, these were very important forms of activity for and by the social objectives of the organized working class. I don't think we can put the clock back to the 1970s or the 1930s. I think in a country like the UK, we're not going to go back to having high levels of union density in private employment and i don't think the co-op is going to rediscover the role it had in the 1930s or the 1950s in the uk as the leading value retailer of mass market food but i think there is some scope for reinvention and alliance if they get together with new actors like community organizations which share their principles and objectives 
that's all I think that can be said is that cooperation between old and new actors, between trade union bureaucracies and community organizations is often not very easy because of their different organization forms. But I think there is a role for cooperative organization of service provision in the foundational economy alongside other forms of provision. So that probably we should think not about Mondragon, where the co-op is in a leading role, but where the co-op is part of a diverse mix of providers. Yes, and I, I think in terms of trade unions who have struggled with membership and the, the position that they occupy with a kind of, you know, a loss of a kind of corporatist kind of structures, I think the foundational economy does provide a narrative opportunity at the very least for you know thinking about what matters and how the kind of the quality of services can be connected into the, the organization of work and the, the enhancement of good work. I think the challenge is whether that potential narrative can be translated into the kinds of alliances and cooperation that's needed for it to make a material difference. Now, if I understand correctly earlier, you said the problem is not necessarily that the private sector is delivering some goods and services. The problem is that the current corporate and financialized form of business is a threat to, to our economies and our societies. Now, let's move to one organization, the university, which in the UK is neither public or private, so they have a charitable status, supposedly they are in between the state and the private sector. How do you judge the governance of those clearly non-profit institutions, but equally non-state institutions, unlike Italy, France or Germany? Yes, well, this is one of the more interesting results of, of the British experiment, if you like, in foundational organization. There's been corporatization of not-for-profits. So we have a large sector of what uh, the Brits call NPISHs, not-for-profit institutions serving households. And these cover um, universities, further education colleges, housing associations, and a variety of other organizations. Now, I think the problem with these organizations is they all of them are not for profit. So there is not extraction of profit as there is, for example, in privatized water, but they all end up operating business models, which very easily become oriented towards volume markets, towards um, creating a headroom over labor so that you can rebuild and renew the infrastructure and a temptation to move away from values in education or social housing towards market profitable opportunities. What we then see is 
that the governance structures, and this isn't simply a problem in the universities, it also applies to the further education colleges or the housing associations, the governance structures, which in a sense imitate those of the private sector. There is a board with a chair, non-executives sit with executives, etc., etc., just as on a PLC UK or USA board, that this structure is completely inadequate to enforcing what might be called the core values, the core mission of foundational provision. You get drift away from the idea of providing useful and liberal education or from social housing, you get drift towards undertaking marketized activities and cutting back on anything which doesn't look to make, uh, to make money. So I think, for example, in universities, you've got this rundown of um, areas like in the UK, modern languages, or philosophy, or ancient history, or classics. And in parallel, really, in housing associations, in English housing associations, under the current grant system, you've got to move away from social housing, where house, new build is being rented at around 50% of market rents, to what's called affordable housing, which is towards 80% of market rents. The big problem here is we've corporatized these sectors and the individual corporations, the individual universities and housing associations very easily drift into financialized corporate calculations. This is so depressing and I, I wish you all the success in selling the book because it is very accessible and uh, I wish that a few millions of uh, people will buy and and share it. Uh, but, so to some extent, can we speak, uh, can we talk, can we define the British case as exceptional in the European continent or not? And what about the rest of the world if we look at the economy adopting your perspective of foundational economy? Well, I, I think if you look if you look across Europe, there are, there are lots of similarities. You know, we have as you know in in across Europe we had the kind of the creation of the foundational economy, and then there's its subsequent neglect, uh, underinvestment, and so on. So, to some extent, you can see similar problems. There's been a big debate in Germany about you know underinvestment in public transportation. You see concerns about the incursion of private equity into care in, in other countries. But I, th I think from a, from a UK perspective, I think the problems are, are much worse given the financialization, privatization, corporatization has been much broader and, and further reaching. So I think there are similarities, but I think it's probably um, fair to, 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 to say that the, U the UK has a, has a greater extent of problems which reach, reach, reach more broadly. And I think the UK also faces some quite unique challenges in the, the process of kind of rethinking um, foundational services. You know, give you an example of um, public transport. I think in, 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 you know, in many other European countries, it's recognised that public transport requires operating subsidies as well as capital support, because if you charge the full costs of running your railway or your bus service, 
the fares will simply be too expensive and uptake will be limited and um, you know you, you won't have you'll have a very poor system so if you want to have a public transport system with a good network that's used intensively you need low fares and in return you'll get a whole series of wider social benefits from having that better system but of course in the uk you know the treasury or government is is really fixed on the idea that fares should cover the cost of providing the service and as a result in manchester and other places you end up with very high public transport fares and you know an unsustainable car-based system of mobility so i think there are cases like that where where the uk is much further away from kind of seeing the um seeing the solution now i think you know nowhere is perfect clearly i think some countries with with a very strong social democratic tradition which still have you know enlightened views about taxation and, and investment in services will do a better job but i think everywhere in the world faces its challenges in some parts of the world there was never this first round of foundational economy development i mean let's not forget the huge achievement of providing these kind of collective services you know in some parts of the world the idea of an, you know, a reliable electricity grid or communications or public transport system is still, you know, a lot further away. We're we're thinking about how do we how do we renew the system we've got. In other cases, it's about how do you build it out in the first case. So, I think that you know, you, you can find good examples everywhere, but I don't think there's any economy that's got it right. Let's see if I can um, force you to give me an overall judgment uh, from your perspective of, of the European Union, which is uh, to some extent characterized by market ideology. This is undeniable, but this uh, has also been constrained by some political flexibility, for example, in uh, enforcing the, the, the market, the, the Maastricht criteria and, uh, the, and, and, and many more. Uh, equally, the European Union is characterized by, in employment relations by the idea of social dialogue, and this has been an important uh, characteristic. So uh, overall, are you predominantly um, judging the European Union as a positive actor, also taking into consideration the green policies, or you have a negative view? Well, I think, as you were saying, uh, the EU isn't one thing but a mix of several projects and actors which are often contradictory. But I do think that in a way, the EU has privileged the idea of, of, of uh, the economy and growth and productivity through the project of completing the single market and then arranging policies around that which do not interfere with the market. So regional policy has to be skills and training and things which make the market work better. And certainly the line on fiscal policy and monetary policy has been more reactionary than progressive. I think if you put all of that into the mix, okay, maybe some emphasis on social dialogue, but on the whole, the EU hasn't focused on the foundational provision of essentials. That I think is the basic point. 
Um, that's been filed under the role of welfare regimes which differ radically between different countries. Now, that is true. Um, you know, the kind of flat rate social insurance that exists in the UK is very different from the German graduated system. The systems in the south of Europe are very different from those in the north of Europe, if we look at welfare uh, provision. There's all this Esping-Anderson stuff about how welfare takes different forms in different countries. But that, in a sense, has distracted the EU from the foundational task of saying, how do we secure the provision of foundational essentials for all the citizens of Western, Eastern, Northern and Southern Europe. This is true. Although, let me be positive, looking at the latest policies, for example, the big effort in the common uh, COVID vaccine um, acquisition, but also the Green New Deal and also the next generation EU. Let's hope that this focus will become more and more prominent in, um, in the European Union. Uh, now, what if you were appointed in government? What would you do first, um, adopting a foundational economy perspective? Well, I, I, I think the first thing is to do that very difficult thing and, and you know, give the power away, um, so, which is probably why it doesn't happen so much. But I think, you know, if we're thinking about big, meaningful things, then one of those would be, you know, a, a meaningful um, set of devolution agreements to, to allow the, you know, the, na the nations and regions of the UK to have more responsibility for foundational services and other things. And you, you can see already, if you look at Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, then it's possible to do things in slightly different ways. And there is some sign for hope if you look at the devolved nations that, you know, it's possible to experiment and build alliances differently. But of course, you know, that the, the devolution we have is very limited in the, the nations of the UK and in terms of the English regions, it's almost non-existent. Um, so I think, you know, devolution of power and resources is something that needs to happen on, on a much larger scale. And I think that, that that's going to be really important. Um, I'd add from a central state point of view, reform of the tax and benefits system, uh, because we have a tax system in the UK, which is basically flat rate and regressive at the bottom because of the reliance on consumption taxes like VAT and the capping of income tax around 45p in the pound. We don't tax wealth. And as a result, the resource base that's available for the free at point of use social services is completely inadequate. If we want decent health, decent schooling, decent care for old people. We have to spend substantial sums of money on it, and we have to stop talking about whether the UK is a high or a low tax country and start thinking about how you devise tax systems which are progressive in incidence and actually tackle income as well as wealth. Thank you very much. May I ask you if there is uh, something about to happen in your collective? What's, uh, what, what are the, the next projects? 
Um, well, in terms of projects, I think the thing to watch is the foundationaleconomy.com website, because there you will see the research reports and the working papers which report on current projects, including work for the National Health Service in Wales, where it's not up yet, but we will be publishing in a few months' time. Follow the foundationaleconomy.com website and catch all the work that's relevant to the foundational economy. Wonderful. Thank you very much and good luck. We spoke with Professor Julie Froud and Professor Karel Williams about their book, Foundational Economy. This was published first in 2018 and now published in a new edition in 2022 by Manchester University Press. Thank you very much for your time.